everybody. Welcome, welcome to, to Jubilee, Jubilee Fellowship Church. We are so glad that you are here. I want to take a moment to welcome all of our campuses. Glad that you are with us as well as everybody listening online and everybody who will listen at some point in the future via podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, it is a real privilege to share with you um, this weekend at uh, all of our campuses. I'm excited about what God is has already been speaking, actually, through the book of Jonah and the message. I encourage you, if you have not heard the previous two messages on Jonah, Go to jfc.org, download those messages, listen to them. It's been really cool to see how God has been just sort of unfolding a message of mercy, among all things, uh, through the gift of through the book of Jonah. And if, you know, if you were to ask me six months ago, you know, pick a book out of the Bible that speaks about God's mercy, I probably wouldn't pick the one that has the guy getting swallowed by a giant fish because he disobeyed God. But um, God has been just really revealing his heart of mercy even through uh, the early chapters of the book of Jonah. And we're going to continue in that vein, I believe, as the Holy Spirit would have it today. But I'm just honored to be sharing with you. Thank you so much for uh, giving me these moments of your time. Uh, I wanted to um, jump right in. For those of you that haven't taken the time to read the book, it has four chapters. So, you know, if you quit listening now, start reading it on your device. You might be done by the time, you know, I'm done with this introduction. But uh, for those of you who haven't read it, I just want to bring us all up to speed on just sort of an overview, a summary of what the book of Jonah is about. So some of this we know, but I'm going to, you know, bring us up, up to speed. So Jonah was this guy whom God enlisted to go and preach the gospel to the city of Nineveh, which was a very wicked city. He chose rather to disobey God and said, no, I don't want to go there, and jumped on a ship for Tarshish, which is probably in the country of Spain, where I came from. Anyway, at some point, God allowed there to be a huge storm, and the sailors were worried for their lives, and he ended up confessing to them, hey, I'm running from my God, and probably the only way this is going to stop is if you guys throw me overboard. So... Uh, in spite of their reservations and hesitations, they ended up doing so immediately. The sea grows calm. Jonah's in the water, splashing around, no doubt, whatever he was doing. Um, God sends this giant fish, swallows him. He is in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. At some point during that little experience, he has kind of a come to Jesus moment sort of thing. And it's like, you know, God... I, I want to obey you. I just, I've had a change of heart, you know? And I don't want to die here in, you know, the digestive system of a huge fish either. So it's a win-win. Um, so anyway, he sort of repents. And I'm going to say repents in quotations because we'll kind of talk about his heart condition. But he says, okay, God, I'll do it your way. So God kind of courteously gives him a lift, drops him off on a nearby beach where he's able to then proceed. The second time, he is obedient, goes to the city of Nineveh, which is this huge city. It was a three days walk uh, across it. Uh, it says there was 120,000 people, but it, it uses this phrase, 120,000 people who did not know their right hand from their left. So some scholars believe that actually refers to children in the city. So imagine 120,000 children could represent five, six, seven hundred thousand people in the city. But regardless, even at 120,000, huge city, a lot of people there, he begins to preach. You know, in 40 days, God's going to judge you. God is going to send the judgment that you guys deserve. Well, there's this unprecedented revival, okay? Like literally never in scripture, to my knowledge, have we seen a group of people completely 100% turn to God. Literally every single man, woman, boy, and girl. The king issued an edict. 
Everybody fasted for three days, didn't eat, didn't drink water, even the little babies and the little children in their homes. Get this, even the pets got in on the repentance. Guess what? They didn't get to eat or drink either. How fun for them, right? Cows, puppies, cats, whatever. Sorry, I know, it's sad to think about. But they all repented. They all humbled themselves in an unprecedented manner. All of a sudden, God does what? He withholds his judgment, says, you know what? I'm gonna forgive these guys. They have turned to me in such wholehearted fashion. I don't want to judge them right now. I'm going to give them mercy. So uh, what ends up happening is they, you know, God's judgment is avoided. They all live happily ever after. And Jonah goes out celebrating a remarkable revival crusade. He's the most successful evangelist in the history of the world. And needless to say, his calendar is booking up quickly with other cities in that region that are wanting him to come in and preach in their church, see many people come to, not many, every single person come to Jesus, right? Okay, no, that's not how it ends. In chapter four, after it was true all up until the point where we talked about God withholding his judgment and offering mercy to the people of Nineveh. Now, I wanna read from chapter four, verses one through three. This is where Jonah just kind of gives God a little piece of his mind, a little bit of how he's feeling about this whole situation. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah. What change of plans? That God didn't judge them and destroy them all and fry them to a crisp, okay? This change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I preached will not happen. Wow, that's kind of like a little twist in the plot, right? Like, you're like the most successful evangelist in the history of the world. Like, take your offering, you know, take your Twitter feed and run. Like, you know, go, you know, it's, it's gonna be, it's a great year, you know? Here's what it says in the message version. I knew This is Jonah speaking to God. I knew you were sheer grace and mercy, not easily angered, rich in love, and ready at the drop of a hat to turn your plans of punishment into a program of forgiveness. So God, if you won't kill them, kill me. I'm better off dead. (laughs) I'll tell you what, it makes me ask myself, why is this book in the Bible? Like, what is going on here? And to be honest with you, the rest of the story, kind of, I'll let you read it, but there's no real Hollywood ending. Like, and then he comes to realize and wakes up, like, God, I'm sorry, I was wrong, and you're right, and oh, God, use me, you know, to the day. No, he kind of is mad, and that's how the book ends. It's really one of those awkward, like, non-Hollywood endings, right? Sorry um, to spoil that for you if you haven't read it. But here's, here's what I believe God wants to do through the book of Jonah, why it's in the Bible. I believe it gives us a front row seat to a person who is struggling to understand, to embrace, and to become involved in God's big plan of mercy for the world. It's front row, right? We're seeing it right here played out in front of us. I mean, he is struggling big time. Doesn't get it, doesn't understand it, and quite honestly, is pretty upset about it. But here's another thing. It's a reminder of our purpose as the church of Jesus Christ. The book of Jonah exemplifies not only the people of Israel back then who were called and commissioned by God to be his representation of of his love among all the nations of the world, But we as the church have been called and grafted in and and brought into that same purpose. 
That same calling, that same destiny, that same commission of God to be used to bring his love and his mercy. So it's a reminder of our purpose. And even more than that, here's what I love about it. I believe it's an invitation to join God in his big plan of mercy for the nations. I believe God is inviting you. If you're here in the sound of my voice, listening online at any of our campuses, God is inviting you this weekend saying, hey, I, I don't care what you've done in the past. I don't care if you have been involved, have it. I want you to join me more than ever in being an agent of my mercy to the nations. It's the most exciting thing. It's the most dynamic thing that you can imagine and we'll get there, but it's God's invitation. And here's the deal. Let's talk about being God's agents of mercy to every nation. Now, incidentally, for you kind of grammar nerds out there, that spells amen. Okay, so next time you pray and you say amen, in Jesus' name, amen, remember, agents of mercy to every nation. Cool. Anyway, okay, sorry. Won't belabor that, but just every time you say amen, remember this word. God's inviting you to join him as an agent of his mercy to every nation. Now let's talk about mercy for a second. God is totally into mercy. You, you gotta know this about God. Our God, mercy is a big deal to him. He is all about it. In fact, when um, he was talking to his friend Moses, and Moses, if you remember in scripture, is someone who, it says God spoke to him face to face as a man speaks to his friend, right? He didn't speak to him through the veil or through you know, the cloud. He spoke to him face to face. This is one of his close friends. And here's how God wanted Moses to see him. Here's how God wants others to look at him, what he wants other people to think about him and how he views himself. In Exodus chapter 33 and 34, uh, Moses is saying, God, show me your glory, right? He's leading the people out of uh, Egypt and through the desert and you know, heading into the promised land. It's like, God, I wanna see your glory. And God basically tells him, hey, listen, uh, you can't see my glory and live. You know, I can't just show you because you'll die because... Jesus hasn't come yet and, you know, taken away your sins. And so there's just that whole problem between us still at this level. And he says this, but uh, the Lord said in verse 19 of chapter 33, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. Listen to this. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no one can see me and live. Then fast forward to chapter 34, verse five. This is when it actually happened. Then the Lord came down on a cloud and stood there with him. Of course, hit him in the cleft of the rock, put his hand over it. But listen to this. Stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Think about this for a second. Of all the things God could have chosen to say about himself, he could have said, I am God, the Holy One, who has the right to judge. I am the God who punishes every sin. I am the God who destroys every enemy that rises up against me in rebellion. He would have been perfectly accurate, perfectly within his rights to speak that. But the one thing that God wants to tell his friend about himself is that I am God, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands 
and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Let me give you a few more instances. I'm going to kind of give these to you rapid fire. If you can't write them down quickly enough, uh, download the, the podcast or email me and I'll get you my notes. The name Jesus, Yeshua, what does it mean? It means the Lord saves. The Lord saves. It doesn't mean God judges. It means the Lord saves. John 3, 17, the verse after the most famous verse in all of scripture says this, for the son of man did not come to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Jesus is at Matthew's house for dinner in Matthew chapter nine, verses 10 through 13. And he had just called Matthew the tax collector. This is a shrewd businessman who would take advantage of some people and, you know, had friends in all the wrong places. And so all those people, sinners, tax collectors, you know, people are hanging out at his house. And the, the people that were religious of that day, they were like, hey, you know, we think we have our stuff together. They were complaining to Jesus, like, aren't you concerned about all this riffraff? Aren't you concerned about kind of your reputation with all these non-religious people and all that kind of stuff? And Jesus said these words, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Even in the name of our own church, Jubilee Fellowship Church, those of you who have been around long enough or maybe attended a discovery track, which I encourage you to attend if you haven't done so, the name Jubilee comes from a passage in Isaiah chapter 61, where it says these words, if they can pull it up. It says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release of darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. So Jesus finds himself, you know, uh, several hundred years later in his hometown of Nazareth. He's handed a scroll. He reads it. This is in Luke chapter four. And he starts reading it. He reads those things, right? But here's the deal. He says, the Lord, spirit of God's upon me to proclaim freedom for the captives, sight for the blind, encourage the brokenhearted, preach the good news to the poor, the year of the acceptable favor of God, which is what Jubilee means. And then he stops. He stops short of that last phrase, the year of vengeance of our God. Because here, he was here to proclaim God's mercy, that God wasn't, didn't have it out for us, that he wasn't trying to get vengeance on all of the sinners, including us. Obviously, that frustrated people because they were hoping he would just destroy, you know, the empire of Rome and all the other people that were making their life difficult. But he came to show us that God is merciful. Here's the deal. Jonah was happy to receive God's mercy, right? He received it when he disobeyed and, 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 and God forgave him and gave him a second chance. But man, why was it that when it came time to seeing other people repent, and receive God's mercy. It's a whole different deal, right? See, our mercy is difficult to comprehend when God gives us mercy, but when God shows mercy to somebody else, it's impossible. <laughs> it's like, no, 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 you're not, I mean, come on, I'm not on the same, what? You know, it's, it's difficult to understand when God shows his mercy to somebody else, particularly if they're different than us, right? And we see that struggle in Jonah's life, and I believe we see it in our own life. Here's the deal. The Assyrians of which the city of Nineveh was the capital, were not very nice people, okay? They used to do things like when they conquered people. Now, this is a little bit graphic, and I apologize. Maybe cover your kids' ears if they're in here. But they used to do things like impale people on spears. Um, they used to fillet them and, you know, remove their skins and line their walls with skins. They used to cut off body parts like ears and noses and fingers just to, you know, intimidate the rest of their enemies. I mean, these were bad, bad people. And... 
Can you imagine what was going through Jonah's mind when God was like, I forgave him, Jonah, isn't it great? They repented. And Jonah's like, no, and that's why we see what he said at the beginning. In chapter four, God, I knew you were gonna do this. You, didn't, you weren't able to follow through with it. But God's trying to show Jonah his heart of mercy and invite him into that process. Here's the deal. How about in our own lives? Why is it so difficult? I believe this is true. When we have drunk deeply of God's mercy, it's a lot easier to see his mercy come into somebody else's life, isn't it? When we realize how desperately we need his mercy and we have received that, I'm telling you what, all of a sudden it's, it's a little bit easier to let that flow to somebody else. Several years ago, my family and I were coming back on a vacation from uh, Scottsdale, Arizona, and uh, I decided to take this little rural route up through northern Arizona and then make our way over to I-70 and, and back to Colorado. And it was, we got up really early in the morning. We had the big suitcase, you know, hard shell thing on top of the little Mazda 5. And uh, there weren't very many cars on the road, and I decided to, you know, see what this little Mazda 5 four-cylinder had, had in it. You know what I'm saying? And so I'm trying to get home. And so like, now again, don't think Lamborghini. Think Mazda 5, four cylinders. So, you know, pedaling. But needless to say, you know, it actually eventually, you know, zero to 60 in like, you know, 7.3 minutes or whatever. But eventually we got there. And I got to admit, I was, you know, I was trying to get home and I was, anyway, breaking the law. Uh, and let's not talk about it. But so I was passing, I mean, I was passing trucks, I was passing cars. You know, you kind of adrenaline gets going, you know, anybody, it's like, Mario Andretti, you know. And all of a sudden there was this truck and I start passing. I'm like, oh my goodness, there's an SUV in front of him. You know, I'm gonna have to pass two vehicles at once. So I'm like, I'm pressing it even more. All of a sudden there's a car coming the other side. It has to go over on the shoulder lane. It's blinking, it's honking, you know, probably giving me good luck symbols and stuff like that. Anyway, I cut in front of the SUV, but it turns out the SUV was a police SUV. And I'm still like, woo! And all of a sudden it's like, uh-oh. And I'm like, oh. and I had this sinking feeling Police officer pulls me over. We're in reservation, Native American reservation. He pulls me over and he's like, what, what were you doing? And I go, so I'm like, officer, I think I made a bad decision. Now, I didn't talk about the other 99 bad decisions that had happened already, <laughs> but I admitted to that one that he stopped, that happened to see. Anyway, the, here's the deal. I mean, he, I could tell he was flustered. He, didn't, he was like, I don't know what to do with you. He's like, I should take you to jail, but I have two convicts in the back seat of my SUV right now. I can't fit you in there. And, and I'm like, you know, I'm just like humble. And I'm like crying out to God for mercy. I'm like, Lord, please. My kids are in the car. My wife are like, and finally he comes back. He's like, well, you know, and obviously I didn't give him any lip or anything. He's like, well, you know what? We can do one of three things. I can take you to jail right now. Um, or I can issue you a ticket and you can come back here and appear before the tribal court in two weeks. I'm like, oh, great. You know, an eight hour trip, you know. Or, excuse me. Or if you promise to not do this again, I'll just let you go with a warning. I'm not kidding. I'm like, let me pray about it. Okay, let's take option three. Let me tell you what, I went like 64 miles an hour the rest of the way home. No, 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 whoa, slow down. Brake light, you know. Here's the deal. I knew I had received mercy. I knew it. I mean, I'm telling you, before God, I knew I deserved to spend the night in jail. And I was trying to think, how could I tell Pastor John and Pastor Dan they need to come and bail me out in Arizona. <laughs> I knew I had received mercy and it gave me a whole new understanding. When you know you're guilty and you deserve to pay and you've been given mercy, something happens 
in your heart. And I believe that God wants us to live in the reality of his mercy to us. Mercy that works then from the inside out. He gives it to us and we begin to acknowledge it, celebrate it, and then it begins to express itself to our spouse, to our family, to our children if we have them, to our friends. We begin to give the mercy that he has poured first. He doesn't ask us to do it before he gives it to us. He says, I'm gonna give you my mercy, every bit that you need. Now, would you be an agent of it? Would you let it flow through you to the lives of others? See, here's the deal. The devil's scheme is to turn believers into judges. And Pastor John said this in our teaching team meeting. We might have the word of God like Jonah did at times, but so often we don't have the heart of God. And it's only when those two things come together, when we've got God's word, his truth, but also his heart of mercy. When those two things come together, the world around us is changed. God's called us to build bridges of mercy, but too often we're better at building walls or we're too busy building walls. Let's talk about every nation just for a second. So we talk about differentness, right? It's hard to have mercy with those that are different from us, maybe even those that have been hurtful towards us. Think about people in your life that have offended you, that have hurt you, insulted you, humiliated you, disappointed you. What about people that are just flat out hateful towards us, right? It's difficult to show mercy. But here's the deal. It's impossible to understand God's big plan without knowing his heart for the nations. Now, when we say nations, if we were honest, probably some of us would be like, oh, brother, no, not, no, don't start preaching about the nations. Come on. Not another missions message, please. Anybody? No, you don't have to raise your hand. Okay, it's okay. Your secret is safe. Here's the deal. I believe that nations are natural things. God has created us as humans to just lump together in little clusters of people, right? For example, anybody here part of Bronco Nation? Yeah. All of our campuses, Bronco Nation, let me hear you. Okay, they're going nuts at Lakewood, Castle Rock, Highlands Ranch. Anyway, but we have it. We're more composed because we're in the house of God. Thank you. How about Starbucks Nation? Anybody? Okay, come on. There we go. Uh, Pinterest Nation? Come on now. Uh, what about, oh, maybe some of the younger ones, Call of Duty Halo Nation? Okay, there we go. Hey, all right. Good stuff. You don't have to be that young, right? Uh, here's the deal. We cluster naturally around people that share affinities, share some likes, some things that we enjoy doing. That's just normal. And that's happened all throughout history. In fact, God created nations. In Genesis chapter 10 and 11, when all the people were going to build this huge tower called the Tower of Babel, he confused their languages and scattered them throughout the earth, each with different languages. So he really was the instigator of all these different kind of groupings of people. So all of a sudden, you know, we're kind of thinking, God, you do understand that's going to make it harder for the gospel to get, you know, if you're trying to like bring everybody together, like, why did you do that? But God knows what he's doing. Because here's what I believe. God wants to express himself and reveal himself within every nation. Within every, to the Pinterest people, man, he wants to reveal himself through Pinterest. To the Starbucks people, he wants to reveal himself. Well, I don't know, Pastor Dan wouldn't agree because he doesn't believe that the green goddess is from the Lord. But I do. Anyway, the point is God wants to reveal himself to us in ways that we can understand. And, and really, when we talk about nations, we talk about, obviously, I'm talking, you know, subcultures and having some fun with it because we really are different from each other, you know, depending on what part of town we come from or whatever, hobbies, interests, whatever. It can be 
kind of a microcosmic form of nations. Obviously looking at the world, then we have larger groupings of people. And, and really when we talk about people groups, I think this definition might be in your notes, but it's really the largest grouping of people in which the gospel can spread without coming across resistance because of understanding or acceptance, right? So if I said, hey, you guys can all trust in Jesus, but you have to wear grass skirts and, you know, pineapples on your head. You'd be like, uh, okay. <laughs> you know, we might get a small percentage like, sure, I'll trust in Jesus. You know, most of us might be like, okay, I'm trying to get through the cultural part of it to really understand the love of God and the mercy of God. Does that make sense? And God is saying, I want to reveal myself to every nation, to every people group from within that people group. But I need my sons and daughters to be bridge builders, to be agents of my mercy to them. Now, here's the deal, guys. Some of you might be looking at me like, what do you, hey, I'm not called to go to the nations. Here's the deal, church. The nations are among us right here. From the limo driver that I met at Starbucks just down the street, who's from Nepal, to the ladies who clean the house next door to mine that are from a different nation, to, you know, the lady that owns a pho restaurant that I met from Vietnam. I mean, so many different uh, people all around us that are from the nations. And I believe that God wants us to begin asking him, God, when I see somebody that might be from a different nation than mine, instead of kind of like skirting away, could I have your heart for them? Could I, could I really recognize the opportunity that perhaps through that person is a family or maybe even a clan or a group of people potentially somewhere else in the world or maybe right here in our region who don't know, who haven't heard about the love and the mercy of God? Man, if we start recognizing those and recognizing, oh my gosh, I could just show a little bit of love. I could maybe say a prayer. I don't know. God, show me. I don't even know where to begin. I believe God wants to show us his heart. I believe we've been blessed with unprecedented blessing here in America, guys. I was speaking with somebody just yesterday about the idea that in every region in America, we can mine most of the valuable natural resources that are available everywhere in the world. And it's happened right here in our country, the United States. God has blessed this land. Do you agree? Are we blessed to live here? Are we blessed? We so are. But I believe that God wants us to recognize that just like he said, so right after chapters 10 and 11, where we see all those nations starting to scatter, the very next chapter 12, he chooses a man named Abram and says, I'm gonna bless you and you will be a blessing. All nations will be blessed through you. You see, he was blessed to be a blessing. We're blessed to be a blessing. God wants his mercy to flow through us. And I believe this, if we ignore God's vision, God maintains the right to reroute his provision because God's provision is to accomplish his vision. Does that make sense? So God wants us to recognize the resources, the blessing we've been given, to celebrate it, to enjoy it, to walk in it. Man, absolutely, I love it. I love my Starbucks. In fact, I'm even one level up, snob, which now has to be Starbucks Clover, which is like the little French press machine that not every, not every Starbucks has. I'm all about enjoying the blessing. But God says, don't let it stop there. I want you to enjoy it. But now ask me how you can bless the nations through the resources that I've given you and show them the love and mercy of God. I'll tell you what, church, when we begin to do that, 
it starts getting fun. Now, you ask me, what does this look like? What can this possibly look like? If I'm not called, let me tell you what it looks like. I believe God's already stirring us as a church. We're already seeing it happen. Here's how. Castle Rock Campus, for example, our youth pastor, Ashley Cooper, resigned two or three years ago and moved to Costa Rica to be involved helping girls get off the streets who are victim of the sex trade down there. What about another couple, Brian and Lori Lindsay? They begin to have a little stirring for the nations in their heart. He ended up going on a mission trip to Peru. The following year, they both went, all four of them actually went. Long story short, eventually they went to YBAM. Now they're in Malaysia. Wow. Can that be how it happens? It can. Doesn't have to be, though. What about Highlands Ranch? This year, there are six men going to Mozambique this coming March and April. Unprecedented response from men hungry to take the love and the mercy of God to another place where people that may not know his love can experience his mercy and rejoice in that and see his love. What about this, though? What about here at Lone Tree? You guys saw several weeks ago the documentary, Those Who Were Here, about James Reuter and his pallet company, and how obviously from recognizing it, thanking God for it as a great source of blessing in his own life and his family's life, but took that next step to go, oh my goodness, Lord, you've brought me some Burmese refugees, and they're my flock, and you're using this business to show them the mercy of God to show them the blessing of God by fumigating their homes, by by helping them learn English, by helping them with their documents. I'm showing the mercy and the grace of God to the nations. Just found out about an indoor soccer arena that's being built not too far from the Lakewood campus to serve underprivileged young men and women, many of whom probably are from the nations in our midst. Somebody got a grant for a million dollars and is building it, very successful, lives in Castle Pines, doesn't have any reason to get involved other than the mercy of God is stirring in his heart. His name is Neil, and I look forward to partnering with him in the months ahead. What about uh, the people that help out in the kids' church at Lakewood campus? I might be like, what? How is that reaching the nations? Just met a family who are from India who have a church, a, a home church that meets on Sundays in their living room, but they're bringing their kids and their family on Saturday nights so they can have a place to come to kids' church and be fed and be strengthened. Can you believe that those volunteers in kids' church are impacting the nations by blessing those little kids? You see, church, it's not that hard. We've got Naomi Pruitt's got a group that prays for the nations. We've got people that have downloaded the Joshua Project app on your phone that shows up with a different people group every day to pray for. There's so many ways, so many of you have given to our family personally for our kids to go on mission trips. I'm overwhelmed with how you guys already respond to the Holy Spirit, how you guys have already opened your hearts and are doing so in so many ways. I just want to encourage us, church. God is saying, hey, I love what you're doing, and I delight in it, and hey, there's even more ways that we can walk as agents of God's mercy. I want to finish up by just talking about agents. What does it mean to be agents of God's mercy? In Jonah chapter 4, verse 5, says this, Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. I don't know if you catch what happened there, but he, he left the city and went far away and kind of built his own little tent over here and was kind of far away looking like, well, God, I wonder what's going to happen over there in that city. You see what he did there? He totally removed himself from the situation. He was like, yeah, I don't have anything to do with them you know what, they deserve God's judgment. I'm just gonna wait and see what happens. In fact, I kind of hope it happens. 
as it turns out. I believe that God's saying, church, I don't want you to be spectators. I don't want you to go and build your tent a few miles east of the city. I want you to be in the city. I want you to be in the mess. I want you to be like Jesus in Philippians chapter two where it says that, hey, he humbled himself, lived among us as a servant, made our problem his problem, and then became obedient to death and death on a cross. I mean, talk about stepping into a mess. That's exactly what he did. That's what his name means, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, the Lord saves. He's not too angry. He's not too righteous. He's not too distant to make our problem his problem. Church, I believe that there is such limitless possibility at all of our campuses, those of you listening in this room online, for what God wants to do as we say, yes, God, I want to be an agent of your mercy. I don't want to be a spectator and sit down and say, God, you need to judge this place. Man, look at this election cycle. We are, oh man, just, you know, whatever. Man, God, I want to roll up my sleeves. I want to get in this mess and I want to show your mercy and your grace to people. All of us are probably familiar with Bud Wilkinson's quote about football being the only place where 40,000 people in desperate need of exercise are watching 22 people in desperate need of rest <laughs> play a sport. But I believe God said, hey, don't, don't let it be that way among my church, right? Step in, step up. Allow me to use you as my agent. God wants us in the situation. He wants our presence felt. And here's the deal. Jesus is quoted in Acts chapter 20, verse 35. He said these words, which are very familiar to most of us. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And my little paraphrase of that would be this. If you think getting mercy is fun, (laughs) if you think receiving my mercy is fun, buckle up because I've got more for you. I'm telling you what, when we begin to step in and say, God, I wanna be an agent of your mercy, starting with my own little nation, starting with my own little wife or kids or whoever's in my world right here, but not letting it end there, letting you open my eyes to the nations in our midst and who knows, maybe even out there at some point. But God, I'm in. And you say those words, I'm telling you what, it starts to get so much fun because there's no feeling like being an agent of God's mercy. A few, couple months ago, Pastor Dan approached me with the idea of listing my wedding officiating services on Thumbtack on this app. And I decided to do it, you know, because it's our 25th anniversary year and quite honestly, I need the money. Anyway, um, and of course, for many other spiritual reasons. <laughs> my first thought, of course, was how, God, how can you use me as an agent of mercy to the nations? And then secondarily, I thought about the money. With the, just to make sure that's clear. You all believe me, right? But here's the deal. I began to do it almost like, I don't know, God, because these are people that don't really go to church because obviously if they're looking online for an efficient pastor, you know, hello, do the math. Okay. Um, some of them have kids together already. Some of them are, you know what I'm saying? And I'm just like, oh boy, you know. Whew. Oh, these are, these are sinners, Lord. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I haven't been around sinners. I mean, well, except when I go to Highlands Ranch. No, I'm just kidding. No, just kidding, just kidding. 
you know, here's the deal. I mean, my life is, you know, in an office surrounded by believers. I go to church surrounded by believers. I go to Wednesday nights surrounded by believers. You know what I'm saying? My life is that. I'm not complaining. It's awesome. But I'm like, oh, boy, Lord, this is interesting. How do you feel about these people? Are you okay with me taking their money? I'm doing this because, you know, and man, God began to download his heart for these people. Literally to where I've been moved to tears at the opportunity to stand before them, to meet with them privately, plan their ceremony. And when they're expecting, what's a pastor going to say? What's he going to, you know, we're married. Yeah, this is our baby. You know, and they're kind of bracing themselves for judgment, disappointment. How come you guys are doing this all wrong? You expect God's blessing. He's not going to give you his blessing. What do you think? It's a vending machine. And yet God has just filled me with that ability to go, I love these people. I want them to know my mercy. I want them to know that I'm not angry with them, but that I want them to receive my love. That, that I stand with a banquet table and the gates are open and I want them to come in and feast on the, on the, on the bread of life, on the living waters that Isaiah 59 talks about. Come and drink for free of the waters of salvation. And it's just been such a joy to, to just see in their eyes like this sort of questioning and what, what is going on here? We had no idea it could be like this. And I've been able to marry eight couples or so in the last two and a half months. And I look forward to more. But I'm telling you what, church, I'm not telling you to, to yield yourself as an agent of God's mercy because it's a duty, because God's going to be mad at you if you don't or disappointed. I genuinely am telling you there's such joy there's such joy. If you think it's fun to receive God's mercy, which it is, but God's saying, man, wait until you get in that place where you see somebody else, the expression on their face, receiving mercy when they know they deserve judgment. It's like I did in Arizona. But when they receive my mercy and it begins to change everything and melt the hardness of their heart and they can see me in a whole new light and perhaps have an opportunity to embrace me as their Savior and their Lord. So how will we respond? I just want to encourage you, church. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you. I know every one of us has opportunities to impact the world with God's mercy, to be agents of his mercy to every nation. And I want to encourage you, do it for God because he's worthy of that harvest. He's worthy of worship from every nation. He deserves it. He paid the price for it. I want to encourage you to do it for the people because they're desperate. And how will they hear if you and I don't begin to pray? If you and I don't ask the person at Starbucks, hey, how are you? I haven't seen you here before. And start a conversation. If you and I don't go on a mission trip, if you and I don't give or become involved or become interested in some way. But last, I want to invite you to do it for yourself because of the joy that awaits you in joining God as his agents of mercy. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your greatness, for your love. God, thank you so much for the mercy that we've received from you. But God, thank you that it doesn't end there, but that's only the beginning. And that you have asked us, just like it tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, to, to, to be ambassadors and agents of reconciliation in this world, imploring people, be reconciled to God. God loves you. God cares about you. God will forgive you. God knows you, has seen you every day of your life. 
knows your circumstance, knows why you've rejected him, why you choose a life of sin, but he sees through that and he extends his hands of mercy wide open. God, I pray that we would step into your love, your mercy, and that God, you would receive a mighty harvest through it. We thank you for it, God, in the precious name of Jesus, your son. Amen.